0: Welcome to Animal Health Insights. This podcast was created to connect producers, veterinarians, and animal owners, and to introduce you to the people and the organizations who are working to support animal health in Canada. Our podcast is developed with the support of the Canadian Animal Health Surveillance System. Through these podcasts, CAS aims to engage veterinarians, producers, and the public in discussions around animal health and infectious disease, as part of work to strengthen animal health surveillance through knowledge, awareness, and data sharing. I'm your host, Dr. Kate Todd. I'm also a veterinarian. Let's get started. It's likely that everyone in Canada has become pretty familiar with the importance of basic measures for infection prevention and control, since these have been emphasized by our public health professionals and our politicians consistently throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. Most, if not all of us, have a new understanding of personal protective equipment and how important it is to wash your hands frequently with soap and water, or to use hand sanitizer when it's not possible to wash your hands. These measures are now an essential component to ensuring that we have the best chance of remaining healthy and avoiding infection. In veterinary medicine, when we speak with our clients regarding disease prevention, we often talk about the importance of excellent biosecurity practices. Biosecurity really refers to the protective measures we put in place to minimize the chance that any infective pathogen, such as a virus or a bacteria, can make its way from the outside of a farm to the inside of a barn, basically so we can protect our animals from ever being exposed to an infection. In the face of an emerging disease or a local disease outbreak, veterinarians will emphasize that animal owners should work to increase biosecurity measures. However, there's only so many times that you can discuss the importance of cleaning and disinfection, or placing appropriate signage, or ensuring that any person, truck, or equipment that moves on or off or around on a farm goes through the correct sanitation procedures before it all starts to sound a bit repetitive. How many more times do you need to hear that you should be washing your hands frequently and minimizing social interactions, for example? I bet you've heard enough of that recently, and the same thing can happen when we're trying to discuss biosecurity. After a while, it can all start to sound the same. This is why I'm pleased to speak to Dr. Genevieve Huard today, because she's done some research that really helps to provide some visual evidence of how pathogens can move into our barn facilities and what we can do to keep this movement to an absolute minimum. Dr. Uard is a poultry veterinarian and a researcher, and she currently works as a veterinarian at Hendrix Genetics for their turkey and layer breeding productions in Canada. Hello, Dr. Uard, and welcome to Animal Health Insights. So as a veterinarian in poultry practice, specifically working with turkey producers, could you please give us a sense of how frequently you discuss biosecurity measures with your clients? Why is biosecurity so important in poultry veterinary medicine?
1: So, um, in my situation, biosecurity is the foundation of my employer. Disease prevention is really mandatory for Hendrick's genetics because of the high genetic value of the birds and also because of the importance of exportations for our business. One of our biggest success was to make biosecurity part of the company culture and a big source of pride for uh, all the producers. Using only biosecurity, Hendrix has been able to achieve complete salmonella free status in all our complexes here in Canada. And as such, my producers are really aware of its importance, but also of the challenges related to doing proper biosecurity. Because like the biosecurity man once said, if you're not questioning your biosecurity, you're not doing it right. Understanding the importance is really the first step Which is why biosecurity should be part of all communications with the growers. But it is not half the battle. After producers start believing in biosecurity, we have to explain the whys and the hows, and we have to adapt the working environment to encourage good biosecurity. And finally, communication and feedback. Communication and feedback are really essential to support the implementation and success of every new procedures. And I really strongly believe that biosecurity is the future of poultry productions.
0: So one of the things I always find frustrating when we talk about biosecurity is the fact that it can sound so vague when we talk about improving or increasing our biosecurity measures. What have you found successful when speaking with your clients about biosecurity measures specifically?
1: Yes, uh, biosecurity is really difficult because for one, it covers almost every aspect of the production, and for two, because we are fighting against the invisible. So when visiting a farm as a specialist, you should take note of all the weaknesses, but uh, proper biosecurity is a marathon, not a sprint. While talking with your clients, you can explain the biosecurity pillars, which are usually really vague topics, but keep your action list Focus on a few specific improvements. Do not try tackling all the problems in one day. It will be overwhelming for everybody, as most new processes require money and time investment. And uh, new processes also require a lot of effort in developing a new habit for all farm personnel. Just try to think of everybody trying to lose weight with a new diet. It's uh, not easy to develop new habits. And I think that the most successful way to improve biosecurity is when the solutions come from the grower. I believe that our job is to spark the biosecurity culture inside of them. We have to teach them uh, to, we want to teach them what do we want to keep out, how can it be introduced in the flock, so what can we do to medicate it when we kind of get that prosta- process into the grower we need to explain how the pathogens move around, the pro and the cons of each measures. We are a source of example. And uh, we have to explain also the limits of, for example, vaccination and disinfection. But yeah, the specialist as a specialist, you are a source of example to help the grower set up new processes and set up new environment. And when the grower takes ownership of the project, this is where the magic really happens.
0: So in turkey production currently, what are some of the most common biosecurity measures that you observe on farm? Is there room for improvement?
1: So Hendrick's production system is quite unique. I am dealing with high genetics like pedigree, great-grandparents, grandparents, and some parent stack. So all biosecurity measures are proportional to the genetic level of the farm. I like to keep a structured approach when talking about biosecurity measures. For biosecurity to be effective, we we have to think of all the four pillars, which are quarantine, vaccination, eradication, and hygiene and disinfection. It is how far you apply each pillar that will vary depending on your genetic level. So if we take the first pillar, which is a quarantine, it basically means isolation. And you usually apply this measure with things like controlling visitors and downtime requirements before allowing anybody on your farm. Having a single-age or all-in, all-out production is another way to uh, do isolation measures. Um, another example is dedicated equipment for each barns. So, for example, not sharing any drinkers, feeders or eaters between uh, the barns or between farms is another mean of isolation. The second pilar is vaccination and it's usually well known and it's easy and it's an economical way used to control disease. However, without being supported by the other pillars like isolation, hygiene and disinfection, the effectiveness of vaccination will be highly reduced. It's an important tool but it's not a silver bullet. Vaccination pilar uh, will be applied by measures like a building a vaccination program that will be based on the farm challenges and expectations. So with a veterinarian, you can talk about which vaccine to include in your program, at what age to give it, which method of administration, and etc. Another important point of vaccination is the auditing of the vaccination administration. I cannot put enough emphasis on the importance of communication and feedback to succeed in biosecurity. The third pillar is eradication, and eradication is feasible for some specific poultry pathogens, and in some cases, it's a viable option only for some specific genetic levels. With our exporting business here at Hendrix, this pillar of biosecurity is pushed further than regular commercial farms, and uh, eradication actually can be applied with things like a monitoring program that will be adapted to each disease that you are eradicated from your flock. Here again, I just want to emphasize the fact that you cannot improve what you don't monitor. Like some people say, if you stop testing, you will stop finding the problem. Well, this is true, but that doesn't mean the problem went away. So monitoring programs are really important. And we also have to make sure uh, here at Hendrix that we are complying with importation requirements of countries we are shipping products to even if the requirements are not based on the most recent knowledge or technology. So for example, some countries are asking for uh, tests like AGED when in, uh, PCR is available and usually highly, more highly sensitive. But since the requirement is requesting for a specific test, we have to uh, comply. So, and many importing countries are requesting eradication or no disease at all. So we have to take that into account. The last pillar is Hygiene and Disinfection and uh, it actually complement the quarantine because it's available for when total isolation is not possible and you will apply Hygiene and Disinfection in measures like for your feed. So here at Hendrix, we are treating our feed with heat and formalin-based product to reduce the bacterial contamination. Our main uh, concern is salmonella So for example, what we'll do with the feed, we can try first to isolate the feed from the salmonella by choosing non-animal products that are usually higher uh, incidence and prevalence of salmonella. And we also have dedicated bins and dedicated feed trucks with uh, regular cleaning of um, the vehicles and the equipment. So those two are examples of what we do internally to keep our salmonella free status. Other example of hygiene, hygiene and disinfection uh, measures is cleaning and disinfection of all the supplies that come to our farms. So for example, we have dedicated wash bays at each of our pedigree farms to clean all the feed trucks and the live hole vehicles that comes in. For the small supply, we are disinfecting everything prior to entering a site. We also work closely with our suppliers so that we they understand and comply with our biosecurity expectations. So yeah, even people can be mechanical vectors and people can be cleaned uh, using processes like showers and then shantries. And this here is really a good example of different measures that we apply for different genetic levels. Because our at our pedigree farms we have a shower and shower policy of each barns. Yes, yes, so it's really like you shower in and out of each barns. so that's made a, quite a lot of showers when you go on a pedigree site, but that is important because of the level of the genetic. But this is not a viable option for lower genetic farms, so instead we have implemented Danish entries, which consists of having a physical separation of outside and inside, using one or two benches and switching for dedicated socks, boots and coverall between sides color-coding of clothes, socks, and footwear has been really helpful for the process. I really strongly believe in Danish entries as an effective, environmental-friendly, and low-cost way of protecting our birds. It is not, however, low-cost in time, because going through a Danish entry system takes time, but it brings a barrier and a spark questionings. Do I really need to go into the barn? How can I maximize my time so that I reduce the number of visits during the day? It also makes us more aware of the number of times we actually go in and out, which are, you have to remember, each time is an opportunity of bringing something in, like avian influenza.
0: I imagine this might have been part of what inspired you to investigate the movement of pathogens on clothing, specifically boots, into and out of barns. Am I correct here? Why did you want to do research in this area?
1: Yes, so one of the major challenges in biosecurity is actually maintaining recommended preventive measures. Few studies have quantified compliance, but for those who did, low compliance when entering and exiting a barn has been demonstrated. Um, In 2011, using hidden cameras and control groups, less than 3% of the visits were done without errors. And in the same study done by Racico, She reported 44 different biosecurity errors related to the barn entrance protocol. The most frequent mistakes was to not respecting area delimitation, uh, the dirty and the clean side of the entrance. They were ignored 77% of the time. Two other significant breaches were related to boots. This is an important issue because to be effective, biosecurity measures must be consistently applied We wanted to assess floor and boot contamination in this study when these biosecurity breaches occur. Since three-quarters of the breaches were related to boots and area delimitation, we focused on that. A central objective was to assess contamination in a way to visualize how pathogens would be spread to support the development of educational material. We also had a last smaller objective to evaluate sanitation procedures that would mitigate contamination, but the ultimate goal of the project was to enhance compliance with awareness.
0: Could you then explain the methods you used to evaluate this movement of pathogens? Um, perhaps let's start off and you could describe your control situation for your study.
1: Of course, so we used two organisms to represent bacterial and viral transmission, so the bacteria was an E. coli with a bioluminescent gene and the data was collected using contact plates. Um, a contact, uh, contact plate is when the agar is actually higher to than the plastic H. H so it allows allow us to stem the floor. The second organism was a T4 phage and the data was collecting just using standard swabbing. Or experimental layout was based on a typical barn entrance We have an outside, dirty, and a clean areas. The outside area was a contaminated section made from a mixture of sterile organic material and one of the organisms. The dirty area was made from sterile organic material only. And the quantity that we used was based on the average volume of organic matter that we had previously found in, ba- in barn entrances. And finally, the clean area was left clean and untouched. We run four mistakes into this design and compare them to a control scenario. Each scenarios were repeated eight times, and our control scenario was the industry recommendation, which is changing boots over the area without cross contaminating
0: And then once you assessed this as a baseline or a gold standard, What challenge situations did you design for your research? And how did you track the movement?
1: So the four mistake scenarios were as followed. The first one was changing boots in the clean area, so basically after the line. The second mistake was changing boots before the line in the dirty area. The third mistake was doing the same thing, changing boots in the dirty area but using plastic booties, that is pretty common on, in poultry farms. And the last scenario was not changing boot at all. So what we did is after the completion of a scenario, each steps taken on the floor was sampled, as well as under the boots, either with contact plates or swabs, either if it was a bacteria of the, or the T-phage that we were doing. And then we evaluated the level of contamination that was tracked. What we wanted to know is, will there still be uh, contamination after walking over 10 steps, which was roughly 10 meters, or will you see a dilution of contamination on the floor?
0: So basically, we have uh, people entering through this Danish entry scenario, but in these different uh, challenge scenarios, they came in a, a slightly different way, and then you were tracking... Uh, the level of contamination as it moved onwards into the barn. So I know some of the results may best be explained visually, but could you describe what you observed in the boot scenarios as they walked those 10 steps into the barn?
1: Yeah, I really want to put the emphasis on four points that are really the take-home message. All type of mistakes contaminated the floor and the boots. So regardless of the mistake, you will bring contamination to your birds. Contamination was higher when boots were not changed versus doing it the wrong way. Following the industry recommendations by preventing cross-contamination is an effective way of preventing spread of contamination. And the last point is that no dilution effect was seen after walking 10 steps, roughly 10 meters, with contaminated boots.
0: So ultimately then, as you tracked the pathogen movement into the barn, what did you find was the best method to ensure that the pathogens remained outside the barn and did not move through the Danish entry system?
1: So uh, what I found was the best method was to just keep in mind that you want to prevent any cross-contamination between what is from outside and coming inside. That's the really as simple as that. So this means that you have to follow the procedures for the barn entry and barn exit with no mistakes. Uh, using benches actually increase the compliance because it's a physical barrier and people. it's a good reminder for people that they have to do something. Uh, the process is simple but must be respected. So for compliance to work, the design of the barn entry must make the process easy to be done properly. So even if you put benches, you have to make sure that the benches have the right size, they are, the socks are easy to reach, the footwear is available, and etc.
0: One of the things I really enjoyed hearing about with this study was how you involved different colored socks in this experiment. Do you think this is something that could be incorporated successfully into uh, barn entry systems on other active farms?
1: I really do. And uh, why we are we have added socks into the change of um, footwear and with the clothing is because we realize that socks are the best way to carry shaving and organic matter from one barn to the other. So we are building all those benches and we are switching boots and everything, but we are still... Cross-contaminating all the barn entrances you're just using the socks. So uh, Danish entry works to prevent pathogen entry. It's low cost, and it must be set up right. Uh, producers must be ready to increase uh, for the increase in time needed to get in and out of the barn. It will be a little pain to do at the beginning, but you just have to get that into your routine. Danish, but Danish entries are part of a thorough biosecurity program. they are not a silver bullet to everything. There is one main difficulty to overcome with Danish entries, is that for some people, putting south can be quite difficult uh, if you're suffering from back pain. Um, In those cases, a mistake is better than not doing anything, so I will leave that to uh, the farm.
0: So was there any part of this research where you uncovered something that surprised you?
1: Actually, the whole data collection process for the bacteria using the contact plates was created by us um, and it took a lot of trial and errors, took a lot of sweat to collect all those pictures, but I'm really, really happy with the
0: final product. So given what you've learned from this research, what measures would you recommend Uh, that producers put in place to ensure that all of their farm workers can consistently practice excellent biosecurity in this critical entry into the barn area?
1: It's to not forget the human factor. Compliance is really one of the biggest challenges of biosecurity. So it's important to start uh, the process by building a biosecurity culture and be proud of all your biosecurity processes. Without buy-in, your employees will be really creative, uh, I talk with experience, in ways to go around the process. And you really need to think of adapting the environment to make compliance easy for everyone. And biosecurity is important, it's really the future. Progress can be painful, but it will ultimately be worth your time and money.
0: Finally, I know there's always a next step for researchers, What do you think should be studied next in regards to poultry biosecurity?
1: (laughs) Yeah, poultry biosecurity is really, really a large topic. But if I would pick something, I will say that we need more research focusing on how to increase compliance. It would be really beneficial trying to mix human psychology with biosecurity. That would be awesome.
0: Thanks so much, Dr. Uard, for sharing your research with us today and uh, for sharing information on how we can work to continually improve biosecurity measures on farm. Are there any resources that you'd suggest for producers and veterinarians who are interested in learning more about your research or poultry biosecurity measures in general?
1: Um, I would suggest to connect with other uh, veterinarians or with uh, the technicians But there's so many resources available online um, that you can use to improve your knowledge on biosecurity. Uh, Governmental websites like the Canadian government or even the OMAFRA have tons of information. University websites like the Penn State and the University of Georgia have often practical articles online about biosecurity. And also many journals uh, regularly cover biosecurity topics and most associations have also educational material like the poultry industry council, the PIC. Um, There's also conferences and programs available focusing on biosecurity. You really only have to take your PIC. Just connect with people around you and you will find information really quickly.
0: That's great! We'll share some of these links to our resources online at www.cahss.ca. That's it for this episode of Animal Health Insights. I'd like to again thank Dr. Genevieve Huard from Hendrix Genetics for speaking with us today regarding her research. Stay tuned for future episodes. Once again, I'd like to thank the Canadian Animal Health Surveillance System for their support of the Animal Health Insights podcast. CAS is an initiative of the National Farmed Animal Health and Welfare Council, and it has broad-based support from both livestock sectors and from government. CAS brings together data and information from across Canada in order to demonstrate animal health and to guide planning on national animal health priorities. Effective disease surveillance can demonstrate the health of our animals, and it enables prompt action to minimize the negative impacts of disease. Funding is provided through the Agri Assurance Program under the Canadian Agricultural Partnership, a federal, provincial, territorial initiative.